This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman Sachs. One of the bread and butter businesses of Wall Street is changing, and so is the Goldman Sachs team behind it. My guest today, Paul Russo, is global co-COO of the equities franchise in the securities division at Goldman Sachs, which means that he's in the business of making markets, connecting those who want to buy with those who want to sell. Pretty simple. Well, it is and it isn't. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. Some of our listeners might have visions, maybe from the movies, of these trading floors where people stand in front of a computer screen or a bunch of computer screens holding a couple phones and yelling buy and sell. Reality is a little different. So what's changed about the marketplace over the course of your career here? A lot has changed is the answer, just like has changed in all of our lives. I'd say, first off, technology has changed the most. So it is true, going way back in time, people used to have two headsets. They'd be yelling in one, yelling in another, screaming across the floor. Certainly when I first started, people would communicate orders that way. Now, the trading floor is relatively quiet compared to those days. Messages are all electronically communicated back and forth. People won't even accept orders in the way they would have naturally done it 15, 20 years ago. But if you really step back and say, well, why have we had all this change? I think basically it's a combination of the regulatory environment making some significant changes on the market structure. Really three landmark things occurred starting in the late 90s, something called Regulation ATS, which put competition into the exchange system, decimalization, meaning narrowing spreads, Regulation NMS, which really got the markets to be faster. That cocktail of regulatory change, which was meant to improve competitiveness of pricing, and frankly, did an excellent job of that, combined with technology invading the industry and exchanges going for profit models. So in the old days, they were mutualized organizations. The stock exchanges. The exchanges themselves. So what's happened is we've had this proliferation of exchanges in an all-for-profit model. They're public companies themselves, many of them. And as a result of that, We have seen enormous competition, but it's allowed these central places where things used to happen to be now virtual central places. They're really technology-enabled central limit books as opposed to a physical place you go to. So when you look on CNBC in the morning and you see the floor, quote-unquote, of things, the New York Stock Exchange floor used to have swarms of people running around doing functions. Now it's a TV studio with a bunch of things, and that opens There might be a lot of activity for an IPO, but other than that, it's really all technology as well. So that's the change. The marketplace itself has evolved. How about the people in the market? What types of players and strategies are out there today versus what we saw 25 years ago? We've always had retail in our marketplace, right? So retail is a constant. Of course, they change the way they act over the years, but you've always had retail. And we would say way back when institutions, those were the two things we'd talk about. But institutions back then were more similar than they are today. There's more differentiation between the styles of the institutional category. So institutions then would be what we'd still call fundamental investing style organizations, whether they were hedge fund formats or 40 Act mutual fund formats, it didn't really matter. They were out there looking to buy and sell assets that they thought were mispriced. Now, we talk a lot about passive or index funds, things like this, passive ways of investing. That's been around for a long, long, long time. That's nothing new. Back then, the proportion was much smaller. 
I guess you'd say, than the proportion is today. But you had these fundamental groups. Roll the clock forward in time, and I just explained how technology changed things, how these regulations sped up the market. So speed itself became important. And understanding how to network all that exchange information together into a consolidated virtual central limit order book became a value proposition for people. You now have all those things you had before, retail and fundamental styles, passive styles, but you also have much more systematic investing styles, some of which we'd call highly quantitative driven. Some people call it high frequency trading. That's a very high sharp ratio trading strategy where they're really benefiting from being super technology enabled and understanding different flows in the marketplace. But even the systematic nature of things, it's just a way of implementing known investment strategies that work in a highly efficient manner. So they may not be doing anything that requires the level of speed, but they're driving pure efficiency through the system. So largely what I'd say is technology has enabled these new investing styles to grow and flourish. And what you're seeing is they're taking more and more share of the money, and it's actually forcing all the different styles to upgrade their technologies, to upgrade the way they're executing. So those classic fundamental styles no longer can do what they did 20 years ago. They've had to upgrade their models. So I'll say it this way. People using algorithms to trade, somehow years ago people thought that was novel. Everybody uses algorithms to trade today. If you don't, I don't know what you're doing exactly. You're not actually taking advantage of the way the market's matured. So that's really where the shifts are. So, Paul, the trading floor looks and sounds different. How about the people who work on the floor? Are they different than the kinds of people who would have joined this firm 30 years ago? Of course. As I think any business would attest, as technology has changed the business model, it's changed the skill requirements and the baseline of how people do things. So what we did... 20, 30 years ago, is just not how the workflow works today. So as a result, you've shifted things. The biggest shift would be what humans used to do manually, literally picking up a phone, hitting a button, calling a floor broker, communicating an instruction, that floor broker literally taking that, giving it to someone, they run to a specialist post, they get an execution, they come back, they relay it, you relay it back to the salesperson, they relay it back to the client. Guess what? Technology has taken over tons of that. A number of those people no in that runners. chain, they, they, don't, they don't exist anymore. They literally don't exist because technology has revolutionized the workflow. And as a result, the speed at which that happens now, it used to be on the New York Stock Exchange, you had 90 seconds to put up a print. 90 seconds in the world we live in now feels like an eternity. Part of the market getting faster, as a lot of our clients said, a lot of the mutual fund big clients said in particular, that's too long. There's too much of a free look on our order flow. Speed was driven by the investors saying, I think I'm giving up too much edge. And it forced the market to get fast. That's really how Reg MS came in, in 2005. The reality is that forced structural change. It forced the manual way of doing some of the things to become automated, or you literally could be traded through was the concept of that regulation. That means all sorts of things in the way we do things had to change. We had to program to do these things and put technology in where basically we might have had a person standing on the New York Stock Exchange floor. So like all these things, the skills of people coming in now, we use this term STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. So the skills of the people coming in are far more STEM-like 
than they would have been a long time ago. That doesn't mean having a good economic framework isn't valuable. That doesn't mean, you know, econ majors aren't valued. But I think everybody coming in now just is a little more technology-enabled and a little more thoughtful. So when I think of how a trader now applies the judgment value proposition he's always given to his client base, he's got a whole suite of tools he's leveraging, not just a phone. Okay, he's got 20, 30 algorithms. Some of them can be devised by things he thinks are the best way of doing them. We code up special algorithms for people. Lots of clients do the same. So this is the way the market has changed. This is the way the skill sets changed. What I would say is judgment is always valued by our clients. How you execute that judgment, frankly, is mechanical in nature. The mechanical piece is what technology has really eradicated, if you will, in the model. And that's made it more efficient. The equities business seems, at some level, dominated by two very different phenomena, active and passive investing. How did we get to that point? Finance 101, the first thing they teach you is diversification is the only free lunch. You know, nothing's free in the world. That's the only free lunch is the line they use almost on the first day of the course. So having one stock is a highly risky thing for anyone to have. Turns out, as you get to 20 or 30 stocks, you get the majority of the diversification of an index. So everybody should have a portfolio, not single assets. Simple, simple concept. Indexation is really taking that to a whole new level. Instead of trying to figure out the alpha in any idiosyncratic stock, you're not spending a lot of resources trying to do that. You're just trying to be the average. And as long as the tide keeps moving up, that average keeps moving up, that's a good thing. I think the innovation more recently is how cheap that has become. The other thing they teach you in Finance 101 is the capital asset pricing model, which says beta, market beta, is something that you should basically get for free. It's consistent with that diversification concept. And you should pay a lot for alpha. So if you find asset managers who can deliver pure alpha, pay them a lot of money because that is rare and that is hard. But you should never pay a lot for beta. And the reality of passive funds is they've driven the price of beta down for average investors so much you can get it for handfuls of basis points. Whereas an active manager... Their worst accusation waged against the industry is their closet beta people, but they're charging substantially higher rates for not very different investment results. So I think the reality is passive has forced the price of beta down. As investors look at returns, they say, where I see pure alpha, I'll pay up. But where I don't, why would I pay for some form of closet beta? As a result... I might as well go more passive. And I think the phenomena of the last five or six years, really the post-financial crisis years, we've seen tremendous assets flowing into passive to the detriment of active. Literally over a trillion dollars has drained out of active managers. All that money's gone to passive and much more. So why is that phenomena now? I would argue it's been a really hard environment to show. High correlation. Well, it's alpha. How yeah. do you show your alpha in such a low rates environment? So, you know, the real test to me is not the window we've been in. The real test is the one coming. It's the one in the next two, three, some years when rates more normalize, economies more normalize, and we start to see, okay, who can deliver that alpha in a more sustainable way? 
I guarantee you people will pay for that. I have no worries that people will pay for that. They'll pay a lot for it, frankly. Some of the high-frequency quantitative strategies we talked about, they're gaining the assets the quickest because they seem to have the highest component of it right now or at least are able to demonstrate it best right now. So money will move for sure. But for right now when it's so hard, guess what? Why pay more for beta than you need to? And I just think that's the natural process that's played through. So your job is basically to connect these different types of buyers and sellers of equities. How do you think about servicing these different customers with very different strategies, they must be demanding different kinds of things from you as a broker. The good news is, it turns out, a lot of them need the same core issues. They may not all know how to translate it that way, but in my view of the world, what you need is an excellent execution factory. And we have a business unit, we call it our execution services unit, and it's related to our trading unit. But basically, I told you before, everybody uses algos and things. Our trading desks are probably the single biggest customer of our algorithm factory. Because of course, they have the same needs as everyone else to access the markets. So the core tool set, I would say, is you have to have excellent exchange connectivity. Your technology really matters. Speed really does matter. Unfortunately, it's just the way the world is. So there's been a bit of an arms race there, but we've made tremendous investments, as I think most of my pure competitors would have as well. So at its core, you build that excellent execution factory. I think that is your base. And then from there, you're going to service each client base a little bit differently. I'll give you a good example. This quantitative community we talk about, they never want to hear about your research or content ideas. We think this stock is relatively undervalued versus this one. They don't care. Please don't bother me with any of that. However, your fundamental community, that's really their bread that's and butter. So you've got these different communities which have different value propositions based on that investing style. So at one end, the fundamental group needs that execution factor as much as anybody because you've got to deliver great executions. Best execution is a concept, a regulatory concept that we all live toward, and they prove to their boards that they drive as well, at the right price, of course. And we've got these different value propositions. I call it the barbell model. We have our classic high-touch model. This would have been what it has been when I first entered the business 20-plus years ago. You would have had people voice delivering information, exchanging values, helping people do hard things. At the other end of the barbell, you've got this really very low-touched, maybe no-touch electronic factory. And I think for you to be great in the new world to service the range of clients, you've got to have both. You've got to have both ends of the barbells equally strong because those high-touch classic services that we talk about add tremendous alpha to those client bases. And having that great factory at the other end is a requirement to execute with the quantitative group. But it turns out that same investment is good for the high-end group too. So that's your value. And then there's this extra thing in the middle. We're a financial intermediary at our core. That's what a market maker is. Our job is to bring flows together and try to reduce frictions in doing so. When you have a very diverse set of client groups, from fundamental all the way to quantitative, they don't act the same. They act very differently of each other, independent, you could almost argue. So the ability to take those flows and find net downs in the middle to the benefit of your client base, so people pay less spreads. That's the trick here. Everything that's been going on is all about paying less spreads. That's all the regulatory changes in the market that have happened. Our job is to even pay less spreads than 
the public markets because we find the other side. So people can trade in the middle. That's ultimately the services we provide. And I would argue by having a great diversified group of client bases over those different segments, passive, included, fundamental, systematic, quantitative, that's where you're going to find the best net downs for your clients. And at the end of the day, that's how you deliver scale to your client base. And that's really where our strategy drives. We're building an economy of scale business to drive all that value distribution back to our clients. There's three core pillars in the equity business. There's our prime services pillar we spoke about. We've talked a lot about the stock market. That's in our one delta pillar, we'd call it. Some people call that delta one. We say one delta. And then there's our derivative or nonlinear pillar. The three pillars, the three time zones of the world across the client bases, big technology investment, that all equals economy of scale, that drives a better business for me and for my clients and for my shareholders. That's, uh, that's our model. There's a move afoot that maybe hasn't got as much attention as it deserves, maybe because it's starting in Europe, but to unbundle research and basically say, look, let's make investors pay for research separately. How might that change the way in which this market operates? We're heading down an unbundling road, at least in certain jurisdictions in Europe. It's not law or rules globally, but for certain jurisdictions it is. So what does that mean and how does that, how does that start to play through? On one hand, a lot of clients already have unbundled in many regards. So I would say for a portion of the community, it's just the evolution is going to take the next step. For some people, it's pretty new and it feels pretty dramatic to them. But I think when you start to unbundle things, it actually puts more pressure, frankly, on both the sell side and the buy side to consolidate, and I'll explain why. If you're someone who right now is getting your research, let's say your content, in exchange for execution revenues, that's how you pay for it, when you have to write that hard check, a lot of them are looking and saying, well, how many do I really want? And by the way, you just can't accept it for free. It's illegal to accept it for free. You literally have to say to the people you don't want it from, please don't send me anything. You're not allowed to. So when you start looking at that, all of a sudden, all these providers, business models are going to have to change a lot because some people are going to get knocked off of some number of lists. So the consolidation thing starts. People are only going to pay essentially for the best research. Really. Right. right. And they're going to say... And the most comprehensive suite of research. Right. Right. And today, 15 people might provide you the same thing, but you can honestly say past seven or eight, probably there's nothing that unique. So I'll take my chances. I'll cut my list in half. And as a result of cutting it in half, those other seven, eight people all of a sudden lost a revenue model. They no longer have that. On the flip side, though, the execution model arguably is also unbundling from the content model. That's not tremendously new, but it will lead to more consolidation. And the reason the consolidation theme on the sell side is similar to what my comment a moment ago. In reality, for me to provide the best execution to my clients, having that big diversified group of clients to net down against is a value. That's an asset. Not everybody can own that asset. And what I would say is at some point, I should be able to, as a scale provider, demonstrate that my execution performance on average is better than people who don't have that scale. And slowly but surely, that means that wallet will start to move toward people who have that scale. Goldman's been known for a long time for its ability to serve the classic equity long-short hedge funds. 
which in industry parlance would be the, our prime brokerage or PB business. What's unique about those hedge funds and what they require in a broker? And how are these types of funds adapting to the trends we've talked about? There's been a lot in the press about this, but what's happening to that classic Goldman client? The long-short hedge fund community, again, part of this fundamental investing community group that I phrased, is going through a lot of change, just like everyone's going through a lot of change. For them, how do they deliver their investment returns? They're long-short. So picking stocks to short against stocks to be long within a sector is part of the alpha that they're providing to their client base. How easy or hard has that been in the last few years? Frankly, it's been pretty tough. The truth will come out over the next handful of years when we more normalize back to a different opportunity set, how they they perform. So the hedge fund community, that fundamental long-short community, it's a vibrant business model, but it's under a lot of change as well because guess what? Returns have been hard. Their fees tend to be higher, certainly higher than passive, higher than mutual fund active. They're kind of the next tier up on that rung. I think they're under pricing pressure. You're seeing some consolidation there. So the industry is just going to continue to keep moving through this. Equity people are optimistic people. I'm always optimistic. So I'm quite optimistic as markets normalize, all these strategies will have their chance to show their wares. We talked a little bit at the top about market data, analysis. That has gotten, if anything, more valuable over time. And certainly systematic trading shops, as they become a bigger part of the market, that becomes more important. They may not care about research, but they care about big data. So what about the way these funds invest that's been so effective in the recent period? I think within this big systematic realm, I bifurcated what I'd call highly quantitative, high-frequency, very latency-sensitive strategies against things which maybe people are implementing in a systematic way where you want to be very efficient, you don't want to have a lot of slippage, but by the same token, they're kind of known theories. Like you can look them up in textbooks and kind of get the theories of why some of these things exist and why they work. It's just they're implementing them differently than they did before. So within the super high frequency space, this super low latency trading strategy, technology itself and understanding the data and being faster than others at interpreting that data and executing amongst that data, that's a key value proposition they provide to people. So we use the example sometimes like market data is the fuel going through the system. It's what kind of makes the system go around. They respond to this information in time sequences that classic fundamental investors can't even digest it yet. So their strategies are highly tuned to this. And they're highly tuned to movements going on in the ecosystem of trading. The futures market may take a move, and they may see at the same time something else is happening on one of the many stock exchanges which exist around. They'll put those two things together and create an action. Boom. They'll execute. Their job is to take out minute amounts of return over millions of executions, not a lot in any one execution. So it's just a completely different model in the way they're running. Without that market data, without technology, without generally low latency in, in the way execution works, that would not work. So that investment style could not have existed 20 years ago. It just couldn't have in any kind of efficient way. Now, it's basically everything is green light for that strategy to grow. So you're seeing lots of investment toward those things. And I think as we look more and more down these roads, people are trying to think about what data sets 
not just classic research in the form of here's your report, what data sets could help me? So these strategies, as you described them, were first and foremost about speed. And being fastest was, in some ways, the strategy, just plain and simple. As the technology gets quicker and quicker, as you described, yeah. is the ability to differentiate yourself harder, or do we do we have some sort of limit? No, no, absolutely harder. When a lot of these strategies were starting to build up, certain people had a huge technological edge because they really knew how to be faster than the others. Over the last five, six, seven years, that gap, whatever it's been, has narrowed dramatically to a point now where if your strategy was solely based on being faster, that is not a good strategy anymore. You can't make money on that strategy anymore. You now have to have other elements playing into the strategy. So I think that's the evolution. So for sure, the market continues to be more efficient and are about the kind of things which were the easy things. There's the low-hanging fruit goes away quick. So a lot of market watchers expect that when equity market breadth expands, passive strategies will become less popular. You alluded to that a little earlier. And to these folks, just a matter of when, not if. What do you think about that argument? And how important is it to have both active and passive in the marketplace? It's hard to envision a marketplace where it's really just completely dominated by passive. But in some ways, that seemed to be where we're headed at the moment. You know, when the pendulum swings too hard one way or the other way, chances are it's got to come back toward the middle. So I think there is sensible economic framework to have a core base of your portfolio in passive. That just makes sense to get your diversification going. Then it's more how do you tilt in your alphas. So who do you give your money to is going to help you extract different alphas. And where we were is that passive was actually a surprisingly small percentage of most people's portfolios 15 years ago. Where we are now is it's a much more substantive point. But even when you try to get industry data on this, it doesn't appear the penetration of passive is greater than 30% of the assets out there. So I don't know where that right equilibrium is, but I know if everyone's going passive, it tends to be probably easier to find alpha by being more active. And if everyone's always active, frankly, being passive probably looks a little bit better in risk-adjusted space. So it's just like this balancing act. So I think all these things are going to be here for a long time. I think everybody will be upgrading the way they do things to be more and more efficient. Like every other business in the world, you constantly have to get more and more efficient. But realistically, there's room for all these things because to get to the what they call the efficient frontier in investing, you've got to mix and match some of these things. So three years ago, Michael Lewis managed to make the equity markets an item for popular discussion. He wrote a book called Flash Boys that described the equity markets as rigged in favor of basically the high-frequency traders, sort of the phenomenon we're just discussing. What was your response to that argument, and how has the market evolved since then? The evolution is the response. There was a lot of regulatory focus, but I think what largely took place is people who were less efficient, who were either slower in latency space somehow leaving a little bit of edge out there started to improve. So they took that kind of low-hanging fruit that was feeding, if you will, the concept of what Michael was talking about. They basically just started to eradicate it from the system. Technological investment, change the way you're executing. Obviously, new exchange structures have come in, which are competing with the model directly. So the market has responded by effectively creating some level of alternatives, as well as honing in on where 
potential inefficiencies could exist, right? Not to say that they did exist, but could exist, and they're just narrowing those gaps. And so I think that's what the market's You doing. talked about a new alternative. IEX is sort of the centerpiece of Michael's book, and yeah. Brad Katsuyama, the founder. Yeah. So they got a lot of attention for challenging the existing exchange model and created a big debate, especially around their application to become an exchange. What role did the exchanges, including IEX, play today? We all wrote comment letters, and Goldman Sachs wrote a supportive comment letter saying, let them be an exchange. Our core thesis was, we have a lot of look-alike exchanges out there in the world. They all are just different shades of the same concept. Brad had a, actually quite a different concept. So you know what? Let's see what happens. I think there was a group of people upset because it was breaking up maybe a vested interest group that had spent a lot of money investing to optimize a certain model. Optimize around the exchanges that existed Optimize today. around yeah. the current world. So yeah. it had a lot of controversy with it. But again, we were supportive with the concept of very simply, I don't mind true innovation in these spaces. We have to manage it, of course. But I think realistically, you want to keep pushing the market. And if there's a value, the market will bear it out over time. So, you know, I'd argue that the jury's out on all this and it's evolving. But for sure, it's had an impact on the way people think. Our big angle on the markets right now, and it, this goes into this look-alike businesses versus truly new innovative things, the problem right now is we frame it as operational risk. So the flash crash is an example of this. We are so technologically enabled as a market that things you have to worry about is when does the system break down? You know, when does the system just get overloaded effectively? And how do we handle those times? Having more and more fragmented markets, does it add to price discovery or does it actually add more complexity to the system than any possible price discovery benefit? I think these are the new tricky questions that regulators have to be thinking long and hard about. I know we think long and hard about because in many ways we reinsure the market structure. We are one of the largest people at the clearing corporation with money standing there in case there's problems. So we care a ton about the system being safe and efficient. We've got to make sure our objective functions are aligned with safety and soundness and not just expanding for the sake of expansion. So in response to all these changes, what kind of investments have we particularly focused on to serve our clients? What are the core things going forward that we need to be able to do for our clients? And what kind of investments have you been making? Sure. You know, I must have said 10 times technology and how it's changed the industry. I've used the theme of scale. So my simple view on this is, We've got a diverse group of client styles. They could be hedge funds or mutual funds, but they're all fundamental in nature, or they could be more systematic. It doesn't matter if they're a mutual fund that's systematic or they're a hedge fund that's systematic. What matters is providing this core base. So the core base has to be, one, this great execution factory. We have spent the last three to four years heavily, heavily investing in technology, literally redoing most things. So. I think we recognized years back whether MIFID came in or not and unbundling was a bigger theme. It didn't matter. This was the way the world was going regardless. You had to beef up all those things. So we've made tremendous investments there, one. Two, I think we're making investments to be more diverse across all these client styles. You know, this is not about I care about one client base more than the other. To the contrary, I care about them all. And the reason I care about them all is because they will actually help each other if I can bring them together in a very systematic way myself. So the best way for me to cut spreads for any one group is to deal with all of the groups. 
So it's an and strategy. I'm adding client bases, not subtracting or de-emphasizing. And I think ultimately, with that great factory, with a great diversification across clients, we've maintained our global diversification. We think being around the world for our clients is a critical value proposition. Not everybody's made that decision, but I think there's a handful of very strong players who have kept that view. You have a deep background in the Asian markets. Some thoughts on how China's equity markets are developing. Been a lot of fits and starts. There's been a ton of focus on the retail investor there and yeah. some of the opening up in the mainland exchanges. How's that playing out? China is a pretty fascinating place because in composition of flow, it doesn't look like, let's say, the U.S. market. The retail portion of China is probably 80-some percent. That's not how the U.S. looks. That's not how most developed markets of the world look. So it has very different characteristics. I would just say it's in a state of maturity maybe 40 years ago. That's where the U.S. was. They're just some period of time back from where we were. So when you look at it, we need the establishment of these big institutions. The institutional portion of the market is small. The mutual fund segment alone is basically sub 10%. So just think of that. That is just, again, not at all what we look like. So when so I you think really about have it, retail investors making... You have retail investors... Making, in, you know, being active managers for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And with that... It feels like the 50s in the U.S. Right. Yeah. With that will come, are they all being diversified? You know, all these things I said about diversification, like, that's just not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about this thing can double tomorrow. I got to get in. So I think that market has characteristics which are just not the same characteristics of more developed markets around the world. So China is on a path of developing that. And I think what China is also specifically dealing with is there tends to be these bubbles which get created in their economy. The bubble might be in real estate. The bubble might be through credit expansion. The bubble might be through the equity market. They're kind of balancing it. And they had an equity market bubble. They had a lot of leverage in their economy, both known leverage and I'd call it shadow leverage, you know, things People were just borrowing money to effectively lever up in equities. That bubble popped for them. So I think they're kind of maturing through that. And as they're maturing through that, they're finding techniques of getting release valves. So one of the release valves is they call it Connect. It's the China market to offshore, or it's the international market connecting to Shanghai or Shenzhen, for instance to trade in specific assets. So China's a closed economy. Their currency is not a free currency. Their equity market is not. It has great restrictions. So I just think they're walking down that path, but they're trying to do it very thoughtfully because you know what? There's a lot of money at stake, and the last thing they yeah, want to do is pop a bubble. Too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that creates a lot of controversy on shore, as you can imagine, and political backlash. So I think they've got this very delicate process that they're going with. The most positive thing is their regulatory infrastructure, frankly. They're very thoughtful when you talk to them, really very thoughtful. But it's a huge thing they're trying to administer, and it's hard. So let's close it out by talking a little bit about the future. At the beginning, we talked about how the trading floor looks quite different, sounds quite different, is different. Going forward, as you think about it, is it just going to be less and less talk, less and less communication, more and more machines talking to each other? There's already been a lot of people come out of that business on a global basis. Or will there still be space for this sort of more high-touch, personal approach? And what, what will it look like if you can project forward a little bit? Like all these things, they're in these constant shifts. But as I said earlier, this barbell concept, these high-touch, super-value-added services are critical 
and will maintain being critical to clients for a long time to come. Because if you can help people create returns, drive real alpha, real differentiation, they're very happy to compensate you for that. There's no debate. And investors are very happy to pay for that. On the other hand, you need this great factory. So it's easy to say the factory is critical and we're going to constantly be investing and people who develop algorithms for us and so forth. Those are easy roles to project down 10 years. I frankly think the other end of the barbell is just as easy too. But the difference is because of where we came from, it turned out 80 plus percent of the world looked like that high touch end of the barbell. All of a sudden it's rebalancing. So during the rebalance process, it feels, ooh, feels hard. It feels difficult, right? And it is true. It is hard. It is difficult. We always say the skills of the new recruits we bring in today, if we were held to that standard, none of us would have jobs. A sobering thought, but but no doubt. And I think every generation feels that coming through the business, but this is about evolution. The reality is there's a rebalancing these skills, but I firmly believe both are going to be required because all those investing styles that live underneath there it's not like one is going to zero. That's just not the way this plays. It may feel that way when you're in some short window of time. I don't believe that over a long enough window. So I think we'll maintain that balance. And it's just balancing where that right emphasis is in that. But over time, we're going to need both because our clients are going to need both. And that's my view. Paul, thanks for joining us. That was great. Sure. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on August 30th, 2017. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.